You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. You probably don't hear anyone else on the line, and that's because there isn't. So you might be wondering, why is this not a decimal episode? And the answer is that we are now giving you the live podcast that we recorded uh, back in early November at the Culture, Criticism, and the Christian Mind Conference at Dort College in Sioux Center, Iowa. We want to thank the folks there at Dort College for welcoming us, for giving us the facilities to do this. This was an episode recorded in front of about eight people, so our first ever live podcast, our first ever podcast in front of a live audience. Uh, We had a good time doing it. Our subject matter was uh, T.S. Eliot's essay on the idea of a Christian society. Uh, And I think you will enjoy uh, hearing what happens when we're actually in the same room doing a podcast together. I want to remind you as well that the Christian Humanist Radio Network is still rolling on with episodes. Both the Christian Feminist Podcast and Sectarian Review recently did episodes on the Netflix series Stranger Things. Uh, The City of Man podcast is still doing episodes. Um, All kinds of good things to listen to, so be sure to check us out over at christianhumanist.org. That's where we tend to announce new episodes and such things. In the meantime, settle in and hear what happens when you put the Christian humanists in the same room together. Hi, and welcome to our live taping of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. And here in the same room with me, is Nathan Gilmore is an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, hello. Howdy. Is it weird to see my face? <laughs> it's always a little weird to see your face, Michael, but to uh, record in the same room is definitely a new experience. Also joining us is Dr. David Grubbs, who's a assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist College in Houston, Texas. All true things. Enjoying the cold air here on the campus of Dort College and Sioux Center. Yeah, it's bracing. It's like living inside of minty fresh gum. Well, you lived in Kansas, so you're probably... No, that's true. You're probably okay. I missed it. Well, uh, just in case the people out there, meaning physically out there outside this radio station... uh, Hello. Uh, don't don't know what this show is. I wanted to give a brief introduction. Uh, we're the Christian Humanist Podcast. We've been doing this since October 2009. Each week uh, during the school year, the three of us get together and talk about some subject. At one point in time, they were very broad subjects. Uh, and then as time <laughs> has gone on, we've exhausted the broad subjects and instead generally take on a text, a movie, a, a musical piece, stuff like that. So today we're going to be talking about uh, the T.S. Eliot series of essays called, uh, you'd think I would know, The Idea of a Christian Society. All I could think of is Notes Toward the Definition of Culture, which is the other book in the, uh, the collected volume here, Christianity and Culture by T.S. Eliot. I will assume everybody uh, has a basic working knowledge of who T.S. Eliot was, but I do think that the idea of a Christian society is relatively unknown in his catalog. Grubbs, would you mind giving us a little background? Where does this come in terms of his overall career? Towards the end, uh, Eliot's born in uh, 1888. 1917, he publishes Proof Rock and Other Observations, and he that's when he sort of gets on the map as a poet. Uh, Wasteland is uh, five years later, something like that. And then towards the towards the uh, end of the 30s, he hadn't published, as I understand it, he hadn't published a a lot of poetry in a while. He'd, he'd not a major poem, right? He'd experimented with drama, and that was uh, mostly not well received in his time. Though I think 
uh, some of that stuff has come up for reconsideration. We frequently have listeners ask us to talk about murder in the cathedral. Right. So, right. At least among our weird audience, that's well received. Right. So, towards the end of the thirties, uh, as as I said, he's he's written more more literary criticism, more more cultural criticism. He's become. Uh, more more of an observer and commenter on culture. And so this fits under that. It's also in response to things that are going on in Europe. He he makes this reference in uh in the notes at the end to something that happened in September of nineteen forty eight that 38. everyone thirty eight, sorry, nineteen thirty eight yep. that everyone was aghast about. And he never actually specifies what that is, but uh we figured it out on the way down here in the car, didn't we? Yeah, that it was uh, when uh, uh, the Czechs ceded the Sudetenland. Yes, yes. To to uh, Nazi Germany, so I, I guess that that moment of all the powers in Europe just sort of rolling over for Hitler uh, was was something that left uh, Elliot and others like him in England completely aghast. Yeah, there's definitely an apocalyptic vibe to. Uh, yeah idea of a Christian society. Right. So this is also about the time that he starts writing the four quartets, his last major, uh, his last major poetry. Uh, and after that, uh, I think he, f- he, he felt pretty exhausted. Um, but you dealt this question to, uh, the dedicated medievalist in the group. So <laughs> what, what, anything that you would want me to supplement that with? No, I think you hit most of the, um, the important stuff that this mm-hmm. is, this is toward the end of his poetic career. I, mm-hmm. my understanding, I'm not an Elliot scholar, but my understanding is he had a sense at this time that his poetry was exhausted or becoming exhausted. He had a horrible time writing the four quartets. It took him many years. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, that's the context out of which this flows. Uh, if we had more time, we could talk about its relationship to the four quartets, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, but I, I mm-hmm. think I think that you hit most of the important things, Nathan. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would reiterate what David said is that this is a a group of lectures that happens in that gap between uh, the agreement that cedes the Sudetenland to Nazi mm-hmm. Germany and the invasion of Poland to start World War II. So, right. if it feels apocalyptic, it's because it is right. And these lectures were also given at Corpus Christi College at Cambridge uh, by invitation. He had previously given uh, some lectures at Cambridge on the metaphysical poets, and mm. so and so he had uh, he had stature as a as a scholar, as a commenter on culture and and literature. Before that, also we ought to mention his conversion to Christianity in the mid twenties. I think it's nineteen twenty five or nineteen twenty seven. Right. I can never remember mm, which right. one. It either comes along with the Hollow Men or it comes along with Ash Wednesday. Uh, yeah, it's it's right it's right around in then. So uh, he's he's certainly coming at it from the perspective of 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 a Christian who is who is in, I think, an adult convert who is still excited about the the possibilities and ramifications of the tradition that he very self-consciously adopted as an adult. Right. Um, uh, That's one of the things I actually like about reading about Eliot is, is the way he approaches uh, the way he approaches Christianity as, Mm -hmm. as, as a a thing that is fresh and interesting, even as it is old and rooted. Right. Yeah. He's an Anglo Catholic. I believe Mm. he declares himself. Yeah. Well, broadly speaking, I am Kierkegaardian, which means that, among other things, I have been bred to distrust the word Christendom, (laughs) which makes it difficult to read this book because I think it is exactly Christendom that Eliot is praising here. Nathan, what what are the advantages of Christendom as opposed to pagan or neutral societies, which are also his terms? Well, to lead off, I I am strongly influenced by Stanley Hauerwas, so I've also got a, a similar distaste for the word Christendom sure. from a different direction. <laughs> yes, indeed. Right. That said, I mean, the concern that Eliot has here is that any given culture is going to have a certain shape to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no neutral space, despite the claims of sort of liberal capitalism to be a, a neutral space in which ideas just kind of bounce off of each other in a marketplace of ideas. And so Eliot, you know, examines a number of categories of, of society. So he talks about the, the pagan society of the Roman Empire where ambition and force and martial duty are the kings of the virtues. 
And he talks about Christianity as, as something that genuinely supplants that. And his concern in his moment uh, is that a number of competitors, one of them being that liberal democratic capitalist society that claims not to have an agenda, mm-hmm. but also a sort of neo-pagan fascism and then a militantly atheist communism are all vying to give society that general shape. Mm-hmm. This is one of those places where, because I've read some some subsequent writers, uh, specifically John Milbank and uh, David Bentley Hart, who we've been talking about a fair bit at this conference, right? <laughs> um, they make an uh, apologia for Christendom uh, that I can at least give one cheer for. And here's the basic structure of their argument. And that means something for someone who reads a lot of Hauerwas, let me just say. <laughs> yeah. But one of the concepts that John Milbank uh, really rides in his sort of you know bombshell book, Theology and, and Social Theory, uh, is the notion of the seculum as Augustine articulated it. And for mm-hmm. Augustine, the secular doesn't name a space that is uninflected by religion. It doesn't name a space uh, where the church is not involved. It doesn't name a space at all, but it names a span of time mm-hmm. in between the ascension of Christ and the coming again of Christ. So for Milbank, uh, societies always have some kind of intellectual shape to them. And for that reason... Uh, he tends to give um, Christendom two cheers, uh, mm-hmm. where I would give it one, and say that ultimately, if you take a you know very sober look at what capitalism hath wrought, what ca- communism hath wrought, what fascism hath wrought, uh, ultimately, something like a society governed by Christian assumptions Uh, even if we also adopt the liberal notion that there should be a freedom of conscience. And for Milbank, Mm -hmm. that's not even specifically a a liberal idea, but that is something that is kind of baked into Christendom as it stands. Now, Mm -hmm. historically, you can certainly argue against that. Mm -hmm. But for Milbank, and this is important, Christendom is not a historical snapshot that we can pull out of a drawer and say, this is how things were at this moment. But Christendom is a certain idea of how society should be that has given way to these either neo-pagan or atheist or other kinds of orders. So for him, what's to be reclaimed is not first and foremost how things were in the 11th century or the 8th century or the 14th century, but rather how people imagine things should have been in the 14th century, 11th century, so on and so forth. Now, David Bentley Hart, I think, offers a useful corrective to that uh, in his book, Atheist Delusions, when he says that when, you know, whether you want to locate it at Constantine or Theodosius or, you know, Pope Gregory the, Gregory the Great, just kind of take your pick where you want to locate where the empire became Christian and Christianity became imperial, he says that it is undeniable historically that harm came to the church when it became imperial. But even more true than that is that the coming of Christendom made the old ideals of of imperium impossible to sustain. So he says that we should neither be overly optimistic about Christendom, we're going to make everyone Christian, hooray, hooray, Mm -hmm. but we also shouldn't be as pessimistic as, you know, frankly, people like me tend to be, that Christianity has been ruined here and somehow we need to recover that persecuted church in order for anything good to happen. Mm -hmm. He says that, you know, first of all, the, the matter of faith is a matter of, conversion, not of culture. And he says that when it comes to the shape of culture, you can point to certain things that are objectively better because Christendom has come and things that would be objectively worse if Christendom goes entirely away, as he argues that it you know, probably will if the trajectory continues in the direction it does because of the coming of Christendom. So all of that is to say, I don't think Eliot had developed those thoughts that far in these essays. <laughs> but they echo. I mean, oh, certainly, yeah. certainly. And I think that you know, because I am reading them as uh, a reader of Milbank and Hart, um, I can see a certain appeal in them mm-hmm. that you know, on their face, probably wouldn't be there. So, I mean, Eliot's particular content, he says that you know, the governors of this you know Christian society, the shapers of culture should have, you know, some kind of Christian education, which we'll talk about a shade later. And then that the common people, the people who work by the sweat of their brow and in office settings and jazz like that, uh, should have, you know, common festivals, public festivals, you know, marked by the church year so that our imagination is not shaped first and foremost by nationalistic 
categories, but by the grand narrative of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, do I think that, you know, someone ought to, by force of arms, impose that on the world as it stands? No. But do I agree with Elliot that ultimately that would have certain advantages over the order that we've got right now that is defined by, you know, a Christmas shopping season that starts on October 30th and, you know... (laughs) If that late. Yeah. Yeah. And an NFL season where, you know, until the last two seasons, which I'm still trying to wrap my noggin around, you know, is week after week, Sunday after Sunday, grand nationalistic celebrations of the military. Of those two alternatives, I think I'd take Elliot's alternative. Now, David, I mean, uh, usually you're the, uh, you know, good medieval monarch and I'm the uh, Harawazian wannabe Anabaptist, but I have a hunch we're going to flip places on this. What do you have to say? As I was reading the whole, this essay, I kept, uh, I kept thinking, what does Michael think about this? Because, <laughs> because that's, what you because, should be, that's what you should be thinking when you read anything. Just generally? W- what would Michael w- think? MFD. Yes. Yes. What would Michael Farmer think? Uh, <laughs> that's hilarious. And it was because as I'm reading this essay, it seems as if he's attempting to order by spec, right? Like he, he want he wants to, he wants to order the kind of Christendom that Kierkegaard throws bricks at. That's right. That's um, right. bespoke, like he, you know, if, if he could get his wish list for Christmas, it would be the thing that Kierkegaard <laughs> wants to burn to the ground. He wants a state church. I mean, <laughs> he, he's, he's, he doesn't go all the way and say right. you have to have a state church, but he yeah. says you really might want to rethink throwing it out. Yeah. Right. What, which is, he is an anti-disestablishmentarian. Good job. Good job with that. I, I always wanted to use that word in a podcast. <laughs> this might be my only chance. <laughs> Topic doesn't come up a lot. So yeah, good job. Good job with that. So can we further discuss Elliot's anti-establishmentarianism? Uh, you if we it can say it, uh, we can. <laughs> and spell it. Anyway, point being, uh, Kierkegaard's uh, critique of it, which I think has been internalized a lot in in modern evangelical uh, sort of mulling over the culture. And one of the things that I've been hearing a lot over the last five, 10 years is it's good the way that the culture has yep. drifted in the way that it has, because it, it purifies, uh, it's, it's rooting out um, the, what, what just kills the life of the church, which is nominalism. Uh, it, it's making it, uh, in the modern sense, yeah, not, not the medieval philosophy. Yeah, no, 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 not in the middle. It's not of weeding out William of Ockham. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, yes, time and death already did that. Um, no, in 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 the sense that it's no longer respectable, necessary, culturally advantageous to identify as a Christian of a certain stripe. In in most, uh, in, in in many arenas of 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 our of our culture, so that. To hear Eliot then say, "Let's let's propose a society in which the masses actually aren't particularly individually engaged with the religion, but they go through the rote forms and they understand the categories and they're playing the game, and we're not actually demanding any sort of, you know, Wesley inflected heart religion from them, mm-hmm. or Jonathan Edwards, if you like it that that flavor. Um, that's." It just felt bizarre to me. But then I had to step back and think, he's not thinking about individuals. He's thinking right. about a society. Mm-hmm. At which point, you play your Augustine card and you say, there are, actually some, there are actually things that are good for human society that are baked into Christian ethics and Christian values and Christian modes of, of saying, what goals do we pursue in life? And that human beings, even outside of faith who internalize those values and pursue those goals will have a better life (laughs) than those who don't, you know, and to get a little, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, like David Foster Wallace says in his, uh, in his, this is water speech. Uh, all the other gods of this world will eat you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's where, I mean, if we get a little bit concrete as David Bentley Hart does, uh, you know, the strong concern for a universal human dignity is a distinctively Christian concern. You don't get that from the Greek philosophers. You don't get that from the Roman Empire, certainly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what Eliot doesn't really go into here, but it is is certainly implied here, and then, you know, I think Hart picks it up and runs with it, is that even the most strident liberal criticisms of established religion 
tend to be Christian in the character of their critique, right? Right. You know, as I've said for, you know, how long has uh, uh, God Delusion been out? About 11 years. Yeah. You know, I mean, the reason that Dawkins is so mad at the God of the Old Testament is because that God is not a very good liberal Anglican. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say that that Kierkegaard is tremendously attractive and and very charismatic in his way with that radical subjectivity, Mm -hmm. radical individualism. But I don't think... He, he takes account of the way that moving in a community affects you for the good mm-hmm. as well as the bad. So and he can Elliot talk about does. the herd, but yeah. he can't imagine the sort of communal religious ritual that, to use language that's become much more popular in evangelical circles in the last decade, forms you in a particular way. Mm-hmm. So I, I think anytime you anytime you get on board with Kierkegaard, you better bring somebody else with you or else. Because uh, I, I think he pollutes you after a certain point. Yeah. It's worth got, remembering. Got, got to refu- mix a little Dante with that Kierkegaard. <laughs> he, he, he rejects the Eucharist at the end of his life. He, he won't mm-hmm. even take the Eucharist when it's given by the state church. And I, I, I think even the Kierkegaardians among us should be troubled by that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, we've hit on this a little bit, David, but I'm yeah. going to give you the hard question and ask you what the sort of society he's proposing in this book even looks like. We've been talking about this for several days, and we can't quite agree on it. <laughs> but uh, take a stab, and let's see if we can fight it out. Well, that's the one thing that he doesn't want us to do, because we we actually alluded to this earlier. This is not an order that he wants to be imposed by force of arms. Right. Now, he gives absolutely no mechanism for implementing it. He, he announces rather proudly that he's not going to talk about the practical side of this. Yes. <laughs> How convenient. I, I, if, for listeners who have not read this essay, there is a, a, a marked, repeated uh, theme in, in it in which Eliot says, here is a really important topic. And I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so he's not going to talk about how this gets instituted. He's not going to talk about what precise form of government is going to be adopted by this Christian society. That is also not something he wants to pursue. Though he thinks it's totally relevant and that some forms of, of constituting a society might be more... Uh, or less uh, conducive to sustaining the sort of things that he wants to he wants to propose, and he actually has some some pretty incisive things to say about uh, sort of a knee jerk democracy right. as as something that can sustain a Christian society. Which, mm-hmm. as an American on the other side of the pond, I'm like, yeah, but no. Well, he has that wonderful <laughs> line, and I uh, I'm terrible at memorizing things, but I think it says something like, if somebody. If somebody would bother to be against democracy, I might have a sense of what it is. Because <laughs> everybody wants to call themselves democratic. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Except and then, for Michael Farmer. Yeah, well. <laughs> right. And, well, sh- shades, of, shades of Orwell's uh, politics in the English language. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Where, or, or Richard Weaver's God terms. Right. Yeah. Ultimate terms in contemporary rhetoric. That's right. Yeah. I think we have an episode about that well, from yeah, 45 from, years uh, ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you go back in our catalog about six or seven years... Long ago, far away. <laughs> so it's not going to be established by violence. Uh, instead, he he imagines a society that arises almost in, in some ways organically, and yet there is uh, a, a, a church which is officially recognized by the state, if not imposed by the state. And which the state is subject to, but not subject to. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, and and uh, in you know year 500 of the Reformation, and looking particularly at the English Reformation and Henry VIII's role in sort of ordering mm-hmm. his own bespoke Anglicanism, um, which you know his his son Edward seemed to be listening more to the theologians and wanting to tailor it exactly to his tastes. But I, I, I it's it's funny to hear an Anglican talk about. An established, not established church. Um, I, I, I'm not exactly sure how that runs, but Eliot's not going to explain it either. What <laughs> is what is he interested in? He's interested in are the is the shape of the society uh, broadly assuming both in its legislation and in the sort of gut instinct of the people uh, Christian Christian ethics 
and the Christian values and sort of general worldview that makes those ethics coherent and not mm-hmm. simply a set of rote of, of rote rules that you can't explain or give foundation for. And right. also not an act of heroic individualism. Right, correct. Um, it's very communitarian. Uh, it has a strong localist feel to it. Mm-hmm. Although you have to avoid nationalism at the same time. So it's localist, but your primary allegiance is not to the local, mm-hmm. but to the global church. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's, that, that was a really interesting point uh, as well, that, that this Christian society must be continually looking outside of its own necessarily culturally inflected uh, practice of Christianity to say that it is, it is nonetheless first and foremost engaged in something that is larger than that. Right. But um, which is manifested in the local, the local church, the local congregation. Yeah. As you right. But always critiqued yeah. from beyond by that vision of the global. If there's a group that is in power in this vision, it's a group that he calls by this weird term, clerisy, or <laughs> the not at all confusing term, community of Christians, which he says is distinct from the Christian community, which is very helpful. <laughs> Do you get sometimes the feeling that he's playing a joke on us in these lectures? Mm, <laughs> I don't know. We looked up clerisy, so we know what it is now. It means intellectuals. That's true. Right, right. That's and true. he borrows that from uh, Coleridge, doesn't he? Yes. Mm-hmm. But it's because he has such a strong uh, idea, and you're going to talk about education, so I don't want to mm-hmm. steal your thunder. That's because you're nicer than I am, because I already did that to your question. Fair enough. <laughs> but, but he has a very high view of the, uh, of the role of education and of uh, public intellectuals and clergy to to shape the way people think and live, uh, and then the shape of the culture that develops from, uh, from this way of thinking then puts a pressure, in a sense, from, from the bottom up on the rulers who are, who are legislating, who are making policy, who are mm-hmm. enacting that policy, such that even if that ruler, even if the prince is not himself uh, the sharpest theologian on the block, or even a Christian at all, nonetheless feels the pressure from the the broadly Christian population to to stay within the realm of of that tradition in law in uh, in policy. I think there's a political word for that: democracy. <laughs> well, but there's also one of Jesus' parables for that, right? I mean, this is the widow who continually demands justice yes. right. until even though the ruler is a turd, uh, the ruler nonetheless <laughs> gives her justice because yeah. she has become so annoying. Right, right. That's a paraphrase. That, that what, That's not there in the original Greek? <laughs> I I know a few Greek words for that, but I won't say them on the air. I was going to say turdus malodorum, but I think that's Latin. <laughs> right, right. Nice, nice. No, this is not, this is not a Lutheran podcast, though. Oh, there you go. <laughs> no, all apologies to our Lutheran listeners, including you, Captain Thin. Um, mm. you, 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 as well as anyone else, should know that uh, Luther's scatological humor is something that everyone else will pick on you about. Mm-hmm. Where end were of, we? End of excursus. So the the pressure from the bottom, but but also he is interested in the way that the laws are helping to shape the society. It reminds me, uh, we were we were looking at this at this in my composition class last week, uh, the the funeral oration of Pericles in, in mm-hmm. Thucydides, and the way he talks about the Athenians, uh, both having laws that encourage them to behave rightly. And they respect those laws because uh, they respect the authorities who enact them. But also, they have a kind of unwritten law by which those who step outside of the social norms um, suffer sort of the general, uh, the general disapproval of the mm-hmm. populace, even if that's not something that has legal criminal teeth to it. Right, right. And we hear echoes of that much later in Tocqueville's democracy in america right you know mm-hmm. this idea that there is an invisible influence that you right. know in in his mind makes americans conformist right. but for pericles it makes them good citizens right and and it's that it's that force that eliot seems to be investing an awful lot of power for the coherence of this scheme mm-hmm. uh, 
which is why I think ultimately he's not interested in explaining the amazing Christian coup by which this <laughs> regime is enacted or, or whatever, because this is not something an emperor does. This is not something a general does. Uh, but at the same time, how does it happen? To be fair, does Plato tell us how the Republic comes about? I, I mean, he, he is he is constructing an ideal society That's here, true. right? Well, I mean, he does have a brief passage in Republic where he says that this could only happen if we basically cleared the state and started with a generation of people who didn't grow up in this society. So, it basically so no, says, he doesn't tell us how. Well, yeah, but <laughs> he, he does say that it would take a, a cataclysmic, pardon me, event. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he does at least acknowledge that this doesn't organically grow out of Athenian society as we know it. Mm. Do you th- get the sense that Eliot felt there, was an, there were enough lingering remnants of Christendom in his own day that this was something that could be, this could be fostered and revived? That there were still some sparks in the coals that could be fanned to flame? He does not seem optimistic no. Does he? I, he he's, he he does suggest that the England of 1939 is right on the precipice of falling into neutrality. Mm-hmm. That that it you're you're either leaning toward Christendom or you're leaning toward paganism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And England, to the degree it's leaning, is leaning toward Christendom. But I don't mm-hmm. I don't see anything in here that makes me think he thinks it's going to happen. Right, right. And I mean, to return to Plato for a moment, I mean, I, I might be reading this too sympathetically. Uh, I do tend to be the Pollyanna of our trio, but I sense that, you know, Elliot here is less interested in giving us a how-to manual and more interested in giving us a sort of intellectual toolbox to evaluate changes that actually happen. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's a very platonic notion. I mean, that's straight out of Plato's Republic. But the reason that you talk about Callipolis, the good city, is not because it's ever existed or even that it's possible for it to exist in its fullness, but so that you can evaluate changes that occur as the, as change happens in time uh, and say, okay, should we push towards this change or away from this change? Yeah. Should we mm-hmm. strive for this or against this? You know, in, in that respect, I can see his project here as being of intellectual use because, you know, when we do have particular individual changes that lean towards that neo-paganism, those are the things to resist. And that's a point Chesterton makes in What's Wrong with the World as well, that, that if, you, if you go into your political society knowing what's wrong and wanting to fix it, but not knowing what you want your society to look like, you're just going mm-hmm. to destroy it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think you can, you can read Idea of a Christian Society in that light as well. Mm-hmm. It's like a surgeon who knows how to recognize cancer, but not healthy tissue. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I, think you, I think you just described a Walker Percy character, David. <laughs> well, education is an important part of what he talks about here, and obviously that's something uh, that's important to us and most of the people, I was going to say, in this room, but on the other side of the glass there. Uh, we'll so, consider it part of the room. <laughs> so what uh, what does Christian education look like in Eliot's conception of it, and are our Christian colleges offering some variation of it? Hmm. Well, the phrase leapt out at me uh, the first time I read this uh, series of lectures about 15 years ago. Uh, was thinking in Christian categories. Right. Very <laughs> worldview. Oh, yeah, yeah. And honestly, I, I, I've i read the critiques by Jamie Smith, so I'm, I'm not unaware of those critiques. But I will say that, again, I, I think I can give one cheer for this, uh, mainly because this doesn't inherently depend upon a conversion moment that, by definition, we cannot structure into an educational system. But it breaks ground so that if and when that moment of conversion happens, there will be enough space there for someone to develop, you know, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, uh, that, you know, it's, it's not being, you know, again, to, to commandeer a parable of Jesus. Uh, it won't be choked out by the concerns of the world, right? Mm. Uh, so I, I do think, you know, that, that this is the direction I spent most of my time thinking about on this one. You know, when he talks about this religious social community, Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't assume that, as David noted earlier, everyone is going to have that heart-level conversion. But he does assume that, you know, given the alternatives, it would be better to clear that space rather than not to clear that space. And honestly, because my own college has such a, a broad segment of the student body that doesn't confess Christ, and a broader segment still 
that is, I would call, nominally Christian in the modern sense, not mm-hmm. in the William of Ockham sense. Yes. <laughs> I think that, you know, our project as Christian educators certainly should be to be, to be uh, you know, masters in the sense of master and disciple to the students who are genuinely committed. I think that's absolutely mm-hmm. an important role for us. I also think it is important to clear some ground intellectually. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, David's quite articulate defense of classical apologetics here. Uh, you're never going to convince someone to be Christian by demonstrating the intellectual uh, nonsense of neo-paganism, but you will clear space for that to happen if the conversion does come. Again, when, I have to tell you... When did I say that? Uh, it's when we, I, I think all the way back in 2009, when we did our apologetics issue. And up to that point, I'm, I'm talking to the people on the other side of the glass here, I, I was dead set against... Uh, sort of, you know, classical presuppositionalist and evidentialist apologetics until we recorded that show and you convinced me otherwise. And now you've forgotten, David, because that's what kind of friend you are. (laughs) Win for me. (laughs) Yes, yes. This is one of the many things, listeners and friends here on the other side of the glass, um, that I've, you know, benefited from this show because these two uh, change my mind a lot of times when I'm I'm being too uh, set in my ideas. I mostly just take your ideas and use them in my classroom as though I came up with them. <laughs> Students don't know any better. Same. Same. I was going to say, and maybe it's because this week I have taught Desiring the Kingdom and a Canticle for Leibowitz. Yeah. But it, but it seems to me what we're really talking about here is rhythms of Christian life and rhythms mm-hmm. of education. Mm-hmm. And so you may not have the conversion experience, but you have the the you're living in a community that has the rhythms of conversion yep. and something will happen. Dorothy Day talks about this in The Long Loneliness. She says, mm-hmm. uh, it's like a man kissing his wife every morning as he leaves. 99 times out of 100, it doesn't mean anything. But that hundredth time mm-hmm. is meaningful enough to cover the rest of it. So I, I really I really do wonder if maybe the, the ritual and the rhythm is itself enough to make up for the initial lack of heart. Right. And to call back to you know what David said earlier, uh, late in this series of lectures, Elliot does make a point of saying that for most people, Christianity is communal first and only later individual. Yeah. So I mean, and rhythmic first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you know the the conception that you know I came to college with when I came to you know my Christian college in 1995 was that you know the mandatory chapel was you know pointless and even harmful mm-hmm. uh because it was insincere for some people and if they yeah. didn't really want to be there that they shouldn't be there because then they would resent it and i think there's something to be said for that mm-hmm. there's also something to be said for elliot's contention here that for most of us and myself included here there's a lot of sundays i don't feel like being in church That's but true. it's probably still good that i recite the lord's prayer right I don't go to chapel. I have to say we have it. We have it two days a week, and I don't go. <laughs> I do, I do, but largely so that I can have conversations with my students about what happened there. Because right. honestly, that is a site for really good theological conversation. Yeah, and I want to take advantage of that. I would say, in in my experience of the Christian colleges, I know the the rhythms of chapel are not particularly Christian rhythms. Okay. Do you know what I mean? And I, I'm going to ask you a question knowing what the answer is. Do you want to expand on that? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> like like Elliot, it's a topic he will raise and then say nothing but, about it. But, I mean, say something about the rock concert. Yeah. You're right. I, I mean, and, and again, I've been teaching Desiring the Kingdom, so take it all with a grain of salt. I mm-hmm. am I am, a, I am a sponge. Whoever I've read most recently is who I agree with. But, uh-huh. but I, I, I think... I think at a lot of Christian college chapels, there, there's no, there's none of the historical rituals of Christianity, the sorts right. of things mm-hmm. Elliot's talking about and that I was referencing earlier. And so there is no, there, there's no rhythm there to carry them along. The rhythm mm-hmm. carries them into something else. Mm-hmm. Plus, the music's terrible, right? We can agree with that. <laughs> Side note: uh, Actually, I want to pursue something about what you just said about the rhythms, the rhythms of Christianity, and in. in college chapel things of things of that nature i went to a christian college and our the president of our college when i was there was actually very intentional about college convocation not being like church on sunday because he want he oh, never preaching. because he never wanted students <laughs> to confuse their involvement with the body of uh, the body of other students on campus with 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 
the ecclesia with the church itself. He didn't. Mm-hmm. He did not want them to see. You know, I've been to church five days this week. Why should I go this Sunday? Right. Uh, and that's a real temptation. It was. It was. It was. It was a real temptation. And as a freshman, and as a freshman and a sophomore, it was. It was my junior year before I did not come to church on Sunday feeling like it was a less well-produced version of what I'd seen five days a week. Because hmm. we had good chapel speakers, and we had a good chapel band, and that was not true of the church that I okay. attended. I and solved this problem by going neither to chapel nor church when I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that that's an actual solution, Michael. That, that, sounds, that sounds wrong. So... I, I, I'm, I, I am concerned that the Christian college not forget that it is the Christian college yeah. and, and, and end up replicating, uh, replicating things that, that Christ delegated to his church. On the other hand, I think, and I'm, I'm speaking only of the college I went to and the college I work at now. I don't mm-hmm. know what other chapel services are like. It's fair. But what we say here does not reflect on Dort College or any of its employees. That's right. Or its affiliates. <laughs> but But I think... I think we don't have a very clear idea of what chapel services are for. And so so sometimes uh. you have nothing but rock music. Sometimes you have a, a sermon. Sometimes you they use our chapels to sign up for student organizations. They have people come out and pitch jobs at, at uh, uh, ministries. They'll, they'll come in and say what the ministry does. And I think when you, when you have that jumble of things, how are you going to have a chapel with any kind of rhythm that's going to, to disciple people? That's mm. fair. But and, and when else are you going to do that stuff? That's the other problem. Right. So, someone should invent some kind of electronic medium by which we could get information <laughs> to students. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Nathan. Students don't read emails. Touche. <laughs> uh. Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you on the other side of the glass, this uh, gray-headed guy over here is actually five years my junior. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the one who looks the oldest. You know, I told students I was 35 last week, and this girl was like, no, you're not. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I am. <laughs> Anything else to say about education? I, hinging on question three, though, his, mm-hmm. the role of the clerisy, mm-hmm. that, that, that ill-defined um, archaic term clerisy, as so important to his idea of a Christian society, uh, the more I read, I realized, wait a second, that's that's all us faculty guys, <laughs> yeah, and gals, right? Uh, it's 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 my colleagues, it's y'all, it's it's what we're attempting to do as Christian college professors is the sorts of things that he calls clerisy, mm-hmm. and so. This essay may have actually more to do with my day-to-day life than I'd initially thought. Well, I, I think in some ways it is a description of the Christian college. Right. Uh, more than it's a description of any kind of society right. on a broad scale we're likely to okay. institute. I assume Holmes is playing on the the title of the oh, book Oh, he's got to be. Yeah, yeah. he's got to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and he's also playing on the idea of a university by Newman. Right. Yes. Right. So I, I think probably both of these texts are... Inherent in the idea of a Christian college. Sure. The book, The Idea of a Christian College, not the actual idea of a Christian college. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which predates I tell the books. book. <laughs> Grubbs, you are a medievalist. I want to get your of opinion. Sorts. <laughs> of sorts. I want to get your opinion on the, uh, the weird agrarianism of Eliot's vision. Uh, Is it weird? It, it's not what I would expect from a person who lived in London his entire life. Oh, that's fair. You know? He says... Christianity hasn't adapted to cities yet, and that Christian society ideally is, quote, a small and mostly self-contained group attached to the soil and having its interests centered in a particular place. Elsewhere, he says, we can't accomplish the society by a simple return to the past, but even so, I wonder if he's guilty of a kind of Chestertonian medieval cosplay. <laughs> uh, what, do you, what do you think? Christian society as Rinfest. There you go. <laughs> right. You could do worse. I think the, the really we, important we, we thing here. We have big turkey legs. I was going to say the really important <laughs> thing here is that we're eating the turkey legs. Right. Joints of meat. <laughs> I find that such a weird claim that Christianity, and this is the quote, remained fixed at a stage of development suitable to simple 
agricultural and piscatorial society. You know, like it did in Jerusalem, Rome, Antioch, Corinth, Corinth, London, Thessalonica. Paris. Yeah, yeah, all all of those bustling urban series uh, centers of the Roman Empire to which Paul writes letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those farmers and fishers. <laughs> well, there's probably fishers. Yeah, Saint Peter at the very least. Maybe that's what the yes <laughs> of men. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I wonder if that's that's the point where he's actually looking back more at medieval England than he is at the ancient church. Um, yeah, because uh, the ancient church, at least as as I understand it, and this is this is not my field. But heck, we talk about so many things outside of our fields. I'll take a swing at the pinata. <laughs> Why anyway, should we stop now? Uh, I'm. We did an episode on Olivier Messian a few weeks ago. You remember that, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was that was exciting. At least as I understand it, first second the first centuries of the church were mostly in 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 urban centers. Yeah. Uh, even uh, even in I think it's uh, late 5th early 6th century Martin of Braga uh, in uh, Martin of Braga writes a, a, a book called the Correctione Rusticorum, the correction of the rustics, mm-hmm. because the farm boys in the what is it, late fifth, early sixth century, whichever it was, uh, all all the all the all the country folk are still worshiping the old gods and leaving offerings in front of trees and all the rest of it. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't the the Christianity of that era was happening out in out in the the, the rural areas, and it was the, the the sophisticated city folk who were still uh, pursuing the old religion. Um, so I, it's it's a it's kind of a weird characterization of that. Well, let me shoot this your way, David. I mean, could he be talking mainly about twentieth century life? Where after the, after World War One, you know, famously the po- population of Europe and America urbanizes and secularizes in oh, sort of the yeah. same you know arc, whereas yeah. the folks back in the small towns still have the small churches and still right. you know little town. It's a quiet village. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's we're all right. Gonna, we're gonna have to that's pay fine. for that now, Dave. Oh, no, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, as as that kind of an observation, that makes more sense. Uh, if, if he's if he's talking about a, a much more recent Christian history, then mm-hmm. then that's not exactly. How and again, it's framed, I, I might just be being overly generous here, but that's how I read it. Well, so he says uh, that the size of the parish seems the natural size of a Christian society, and that industrial, urban, suburban life. Uh, pulls against the natural rhythms of human interaction, individual interaction, the kinds of relationships that make that sort of society meaningful, the the, the face-to-face relationships, not the faceless mm-hmm. relationships. Those are all the things that he wants to restore. And if if it is a kind of medieval cosplay, I don't know that they have to be dressed up in, you know, hose and leather <laughs> jerkins. Um, but it'd sure be more fun. Maybe, maybe uh, he so. said jerkin. Uh, <laughs> Beavis. Anyway, That's so <laughs> we're gonna have to cut that one. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the uh, you've completely thrown me off, man. <laughs> I can't believe you. He does. Ha- he does have this. Uh, this. This view, and it shows up in the four quartets in uh, in East Coker, where he mm-hmm. presents kind of a vision of of the uh, almost as if a, a haunted reenactment of of peasants in days of yore um, dancing this dance that means their society, but also means natural cycles. Right, and he mm-hmm. he does seem to have this idea that there was back in the day, how whatever that ill-defined day is. Um, a time when life was more attuned with those things that are real, and that's mm-hmm. uh, and that's what uh, what what he brings up in the four quartets. That, Which isn't it a weird thing for him to say? He's he's one of the great poets of the city. That well, but he's not a great poet of I really love the city. That's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always yeah, I mean, like that yellow fog rubbing its back against the window pane. That mm-hmm. is beautiful. But the Hollow Men is not written by someone who just is super stoked. Or the about Wasteland. You're right. Life. The crowd of the yeah. dead walking across London Bridge, right. echoing Dante's uncommitted, damned. I had not. I had not realized death had undone so many. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, 
it's also uh, it, it also seems to leave out a middle ages in which there are peasant revolts yeah well <laughs> and the fact that uh, the, the reason why they were so rooted to the land is because they couldn't leave yeah right so right. yeah well it's interesting david i mean that that critique of the middle ages i mean is often you know what we hear uh, when we hear the the strongest critiques of you know Rod Dreher's recent project, the Benedict Option, mm-hmm. uh, that you know this is ignoring the actual historically verifiable abuses of Christendom, mm-hmm. uh, and that a callback to that you know is inherently abusive. And again, I, you know, I, I of course interviewed Rod Dreher not long ago uh, when the book was first published, and it strikes me that what he's interested in is a form of discipleship that is informed by that, mm. but but kind of like what you were talking about. Um, pulls on those rhythms of church life and pulls on that strong sense of discipleship mm-hmm. uh, that's inherent in a lot of forms of Christianity. I Honestly, I see this in his Twitter feed, but I didn't really see it in the book. I didn't see a grand sense that, you know, some kind of, of political coup is in the works that's going to make all this happen. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's interesting that, you know, in, in our own day, uh, you know, we brought up David Bentley Hart and John Milbank. I mean, I think Rod Dreher also has a sense that is at least running parallel to this, that, again, you know, given the choice between a life that is formed by the rhythms of the faith and the life that is formed by the rhythms of, you know, Christmas shopping season and, mm-hmm. you know, um, things of that sort, uh, that ultimately this is, you know, the better choice of the two. Right. And the more difficult one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, to invoke invoke the the four quartets, the the idea that this that this life is in a deep harmony with what is real in the universe that that Christian ethics, that Christian values, that that Christian um, understanding of reality that undergirds those those life the the shapes of those lives uh, is this is not distinguishable from the logic that sets stars in place. Right. Mm-hmm. So so that um, a rightly ordered society around these values, they, they are dancing with the stars in, in, in that very kind of medieval <laughs> way that doesn't involve reality show people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a kind of, uh, for, for a modern poet, there's a kind of, of unironic, love of that vision that I think is really difficult in our culture. We can't say dancing with the stars without thinking of, you know, the crocodile hunter's daughter or whoever, <laughs> Lopez, or whoever it happens thinking. to be, you know, now, but, but that image of dancing with the stars is something that he brings up. Right. Right. And I love that unironic desire for a life that is, that, that abides by that deep harmony. Hashtag Boethius. Hashtag Dante. Yeah. <laughs> hashtag, hashtag, hashtag. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, with all those hashtags, I think uh, we ought to open this up to questions from our studio audience. <laughs> if anybody has any. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, really interesting conversation, guys. Thank you so much. So my question is, um, Speaking of the T.S. Eliot lectures, that was the springboard for this uh, conversation. What kind of influence have these lectures had going forward? Do we know of any politicians or political movements that were directly influenced by Eliot's ideas, or did they just kind of, you know, wither off into into uh, nothingness? Uh, I know that the, oh, what is it called now? Lost the name. The Red Tory movement in British politics uh, is taking influence from these kinds of ideas. I don't know how often they cite hmm. Eliot in particular, but uh, uh, Philip Blonde, who I believe was a member of Parliament, I should know that, but I didn't know I'd be talking about him for the show. Um, but uh, you know, he was a graduate student of John Milbank. So I mean, this idea of you know two cheers for Christendom is something that definitely concretely shapes. Uh, the policy ideas that uh, Philip Blonde has for British politics. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., I'm not nearly as sure. And I think, honestly, part of that might be that we have more of a vestigial uh, liberal Calvinist feel, frankly, in our current Democratic Party that doesn't necessarily, you know, make a whole lot of explicit religious claims, but still has a strong sense of public righteousness, whereas, you know, that's not as... uh, how to say this, 
it's not as radical a thing in British politics to go that direction. Does that make any sense at all? I, I, I lost the thread there. Well, the nature of Christian politics from the beginning being one in which a, the establishment of a church is always verboten, mm-hmm. while at the same time presuming a lot of the things that T.S. Eliot seems to be setting up in his Christian society without necessarily establishing... Um, through the federal wing of things, at least mm-hmm. um, the kinds of the kinds of structures that he thinks are necessary to keep that going. Um, I, the the, Amer- the American vision of how that good society happens seems to be very different from his. But yeah, but that makes perfect sense. He's a mm-hmm. he's a he's a British Anglo Catholic monarchist who grew up in St. Louis. To yeah. be fair, well, I know. But... I refuse to call him a British poet. He's an American poet. <laughs> no, but my, my point is. That's the thing he chose. Right. 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 He'd be furious with me. <laughs> <laughs> right. He has all the enthusiasm for that for that system that he has for, you know, his conversion to Christianity. He has the convert zeal. Mm. Uh, I think he became a British citizen at about the same time. Mm. Okay. And so much for coming here to Dort and for this conversation. I had a question about... Uh, back to Eliot. In my first year of teaching high school literature, I thought it would be a great idea to have my high schoolers try to dissect the wasteland. Oh my gosh. It's probably a mistake. But as I was researching for that, I noticed a couple of things. I noticed um, first that his pre-conversion work and his post-conversion work both share that same kind of sense of unease mm-hmm. with proof rocks. I don't think the mermaids will seem, sing to me and with the wise men no longer at ease in this new dispensation. Um, But I also noticed that a lot of critics seem to think that his post-conversion work is inferior. And I was curious what you all had to say to that, if your response might be, uh, if you wanted to defend him, and if uh, if you agree, why you think that might be the case. Michael? Yeah, let's see. (laughs) I know there are people who think the four quartets are the best thing he ever wrote. Um, I'm not sure I'm one of them. I think there's really good pieces in the four quartets, but I've always struggled to hear the music in them. I, I, they, they, they don't hold together as poems for me. I can't tell if you're agreeing with me or disagreeing with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do love Ash Wednesday, although I also recognize there's pieces of Ash Wednesday that aren't as good as the rest of the poem. Um, I loved The Hollow Man. The Hollow Man, excuse me. Hollow Man, I should say, is a Daniel Amos uh, rewrite of Hollow Man. So I, not only can I never remember that the poem is called Hollow Man, I also know the paraphrase better than the actual poem. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's got to be harder. It's got to be harder to make your wholeness come across than it is to make your brokenness come across. You know, the, mm-hmm. the power of the wasteland is how broken it is. And, and it you don't need as much talent to to show that brokenness as to put it back together in a convincing way. At what point N- was... Not that I'm saying yeah. I'm more talented than Elliot or anything like that, of course. Right. At what point was Elliot no longer working with Pound as a... I can't answer that. Okay. Because I know Pound had a lot to do with the wasteland and the, sh- the shape true. of its revision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the the original version of the wasteland is quite different and not know, as good. Not not that, you know, not that Eliot is not a brilliant poet without Pound and everything we love in Eliot comes from Pound, but nonetheless, it, it does it does make for um, there there is an actual different process going on in some of that early stuff. Um, maybe that's something. Maybe maybe there are some 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 weaknesses that we see in the later Eliot that Pound would have pounded out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I would also add that Eliot's talent really was for fragmentation. So even the four quartets mm. were written as other poems that he kind of brought together. They weren't mm. the, the different sections weren't written together. And so when your talent is for fragmentation and you're trying to show wholeness. Yeah. I mean, he's still he's still got to be top three poets of the 20th century, top 10 poets of all time. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm not sure I would disagree that his post conversion work is inferior to his pre conversion work. Mm-hmm. I think he also develops a kind of earnestness, even if it's not necessarily an unremitting optimism. Um, but there is an earnestness in his later work I agree. that I would imagine there's not a taste for in the hmm. 
in in kind of the, the larger community in which he's the larger community of poets and critics in which he's writing at that part of his career um, that they don't have a taste for that flavor um, they're mm-hmm. drinking deeply of the irony and the distance and and the the moments when his his sense of uh, there is a spiritual truth, and there, and when, when he just when he starts reciting liturgy or scripture in ways that are not even that are not framed ironically, I wonder if if critics were like, why did he convert? Maybe maybe in the twenties and thirties, but I think by the time you move toward Ford, four, four quartets, uh, mainstream American poetry is moving toward confessionalism. So, so uh, the yeah. ironic mm. remove is not what they would have missed in them. Okay. They, they may not like that ritual. They, they may see it as inauthentic. Mm. Um, but I, I, don't think, I don't think the problem for a reader of Robert Lowell or Sylvia Plath would have been that mm. Eliot was, uh, was, too, was not ironic enough. Okay. Because <laughs> the, the whole motion there is, is toward earnestness. Any other questions? I, all right, I actually have one more, and then I think we will probably plan on wrapping up. Um, okay. So you mentioned the Benedict option and kind yes. of these two different ways of formation, one, the Christmas shopping versus this formation by the church. And so my question for you is, do you think that being shaped by the church has to be retreatist in the way that Benedict, uh, that Dreyer, sorry, um, comes up with? Or do you think that we can go for a more... Um, church calendar liturgical way that does not have to be countercultural. I mean, that is countercultural, but doesn't have to be retreatist. Mm-hmm. And it, are there ways to do that, even though it's very difficult to celebrate Advent in a culture that is celebrating Christmas, Almost or to celebrate impossible. Lent in a culture that is already celebrating Easter? Do you mm-hmm. think there's ways for Christians to kind of reinstate the old church calendar? Yeah, I'll take the first swing at this. Um, first of all, when I did interview Dreher, I mean, one of the points where I, I criticized him most heavily was uh, his insistence that whatever it was he was describing couldn't happen in the public school system. Uh, you know, uh, first of all, just, you know, as a matter of disclosure, I come from a family of public educators. My wife teaches in public school. My dad taught high school level English in a medium security prison. My grandma was a public school elementary teacher. So, you know, I am all about educating those people. Uh, who honestly wouldn't always get it from their parents. So I agree that, you know, especially in the educational realm, uh, his notion that we can only do this by geographically separating ourselves from uh, those who are the bad influences is a wrongheaded thing. And part of that for me, again, as, as probably of the three of us, the biggest advocate for public schooling is that I don't think of the individual child as the primary unit in the public school world, but I think of the family as the main unit. So, I mean, uh, the fact that, you know, my wife and I know our children's teachers and we participate in their classroom activities, things like that, makes it a different picture from the sort of, you know, send them off to Babylon to be educated and get thrown in fiery furnaces and whatnot picture that we sometimes get. Now, I think that when it comes to the rhythms of our life, it's going to be by definition separatist at the very least, even if it is not a geographic separation, if we are fasting during Advent rather than feasting, mm-hmm. and if we are uh, anticipating Christmas uh, and we actually celebrate the 12 days of Christmas starting with December 25th, uh, where the rest of you know American consumer society, including, by the way, some of my fellow English majors, from Milligan College, a Christian liberal arts college. You know, they post on their social media feeds on, you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, December 14th. We're having our first day of Christmas. I'm like, no, you're not. No, you're not. That's okay. <laughs> Crown students started listening to Christmas music in mid-September. I just want just oh, to strangle them. <laughs> um, but I shouldn't monopolize this. I mean, David, what, what do you think about, about the, the separatist question? The phrase, you can't unring the bell. Yeah, mm-hmm. or retreatist. That was actually the right, word in the question. Right, My apologies. Right, retreatist. Uh, the idea that we would be able to kind of submerge ourselves in a kind of self-contained culture in which um, we're not getting any Christmas until Christmas Day, and but we're just adventing. I, I suppose someone could attempt that, but I don't. 
I, I think what you're going to end up having to do instead is to continually maintain your calendar in a kind of self-conscious tension, dialectical tension, with the calendar of the culture that you're in. Right. Um, to you know, as I, as I'm bringing you know my own children up to explain to them, this is the way we do these things for these reasons, and this mm-hmm. is what you see. Um, this is the shape of life and the culture. Right. We are intentionally pursuing a life that's shaped differently. Yeah. Um, and uh, here's 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 what to say. Here's how to think about this, mm-hmm. but not in a not not in a. I want to make sure that no that they never know of anything else. Right, right. Um, so difference and proximity is right. kind of the alternative that I'd propose. Right. Now I will say that I do agree with his his critique of giving children internet devices at way too young an age. Uh, that is just a wild west where my kids don't have guns, and you know that's that's one place where I unapologetically think that Rod Dreher is right mm-hmm. that giving kids internet connected devices at too young an age is just a Terrible idea. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we've quite um, gotten our our emotional instincts around just what a Mad Max crazy world. Yeah, <laughs> even though we're all on it. Yeah, eighteen hours a day. You'd think we'd be able to tell. Yeah. I don't have kids. I don't have. I don't have a dog in that fight to some extent. No. I think. I, I think part of the problem here is that our consumerist American culture still calls it Christmas. Mm-hmm. If they if they called it something else, if they called it winter holiday, it would all, it would be less damaging, I think. Hmm. <laughs> Happy Yule. So, so in, other, in other words, Yule man. in other words, we shouldn't be saying Merry Christmas. We should be saying <laughs> Happy Holidays. Uh, and not boycotting Starbucks because of their cups. There's lots of reasons to boycott Starbucks. Remember, I live in Minnesota, the land of caribou coffee. That's fair. <laughs> well, I think that I think we're just about out of time. Um, I want to thank. KDCR here at Dort College for allowing us to record here. I want to thank Jim Balkama for recording and engineering this session. Thank you, Davey Henriksen, Liz Moss, for inviting us to do this and making it possible. For Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.